uh, a verse, another couple of verses there that caught my attention when speaking about the knowledge and wisdom of God. This is what one of the psalmists wrote. Psalm 139 is pretty cool. If you have not read it, well, you probably have, but read it again. There's just so much in there. But part of what's in there are these two verses here. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend. I think that every week when I sit down to start working and thinking about a sermon, and and I just pray that he will help me to comprehend his thoughts because that's what we're not. I think that's how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. I read that verse and it prompted a few things in me um, as I was working on this. Um, so how many grains of sand are there? I thought to myself, in man's arrogance, he has an answer. So like most good Americans looking for what we think is sound information, I googled it. According to what seems to be a consensus of opinion, it is estimated there are 7.5 quintillion grains of sand just on the beaches of the world. This is what that number looks like if you're wondering. I would have guessed a higher number. What do I? I preferred the answer one of the one of the fellows gave um, on this before he explained how it was that he went about figuring it out. Um, the answer he gave was, uh, "There's a lot," and I thought, "Well, that was earlier to me. That was a, pr- a pretty good answer." And then I thought, "Well, you know, maybe I should pick something that's easier to count. Grains of sand are pretty small. Let's go for something that's a little bit easier to count." So I I looked up how many trees there are in the world. They're bigger, they're easier to count. And once again, there seemed to be a consensus that there are 3.04 trillion trees. There's the number. 3 trillion, 40 billion trees. Now, as I was thinking about that, I realized uh, the one behind my house died, so make that uh, 3 trillion, 39 billion, 999 million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine that's what i was thinking again i would have just gone with uh, there's a lot that just would have been my answer had somebody asked me now i checked one more that i thought would be easier to count so i looked up the world's population uh the most most recent figure i could find was for june of 2019 so keep in mind when i share this number with you it does not include all of the births since uh, June, you know, so for the last six months, six and a half months, it does not include any of those births. And the U.S. Census Bureau, in their wisdom, says that there are 7,577,130,400 people. I thought, you guys are getting a pretty specific number there. And then as I did that, I looked, when you do a Google search, then it tells you how many or approximately how many answers uh, they gave. And they told me that there were approximately 7,300,000 results for my search. I did not read them all. Quick math tells me 
that there are 277,713,040 people who either have no opinion uh, or it's the same as, as someone else's opinion or, or they just don't care. Now I thought, well, what the good thing to do is to share with you the biblical answer to how many people there are in the world. I want to tell you how I arrived at my answer. Remembering, remembering that there are a seven quintillion, five hundred quadrillion grains of sand on the beach, on the beaches of the world, estimating, and then reading in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. I thought, well, I have a direct comparison here. The grains of sand on the seashore are mentioned in, in the Hebrews verse here. And, of course, we have this wonderful estimation of the grand grains of sand on the beaches of the world. Now, realize, as you look at this verse, it is simply talking about Abraham's offspring and not the whole world. Now, God says that there are innumerable offspring you know, as the grains of sand by the seashore, which apparently we gave a number to anyway. Um, so again, simple math allowed me to do the calculation, and I came up with the fact that, well, there's a lot. You know, there's just a lot of people. Today, we are talking about some of those people. We are going back to our study of 12 of these guys um, that came along, you know, in, in the line of Abraham, the apostles, the 12 apostles. We already looked at four of them. No doubt you have that memorized. You know, we looked at Peter, Andrew, James, and John before our Advent series, and we went into Advent. Today we're going to look at Philip. We're going to see what we might be able to learn as we look at Philip's life and what God reveals to us there and how he worked with him. One of the 12 men who, well, 11 of them, well, I guess Judas had a part in this too, but one of the 12 guys who literally turned the world upside down. From their encounter with Jesus, they literally turned the world upside down. Things have never been the same since. Let's pray. We're going to look at Philip's life a little bit. Father, thank you for uh, the record that shows us something about these men that we might learn how you interacted with them, Maybe come up with some guesses as to why you picked them, but the neat thing is to see how you transformed them and how you worked in them and chose to work through them. So help us as we look and as we see that we might be those whom you would choose to work through and that we might get out of the way as you do. It's a little difficult for us, so give us wisdom again from your word and your truth, we ask for our life, for our living, for our transformation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Philip's a Greek name. He probably also had a Hebrew name, as all, all of the apostles were Jewish. So he probably had a Hebrew name. Um, the people under, the, the, the people at you know, this time were under Roman rule, really since the conquest of Alexander the Great in 4 BC. So what you have here is over the 400 years, uh, the people had adopted the Greek culture. They had adopted the Greek language, you know, of the Roman Empire at that time. And Philip, 
probably came from a Hellenistic family uh, because you know, that's a family that adopted Greek language and adopted the culture, and they were referred to as Hellenists. So when you see that in Scripture, that's what they're referring to. Those who, some Hebrew, some of the more dedicated Hebrews might might think of them as just not not quite what they should be because they've they've done this but jewish custom would have also given him a hebrew name it's never recorded in scripture so apparently he went by philip all the time Um, now this is not the same philip that you read about in the book of acts who was one of the first deacons and who went and and talked to the ethiopian eunuch this is this is a different guy in john chapter one uh, as, as you look at it, you know, in, in verse, well, look there in verse 44, it tells us that he was from Bethsaida. And um, it, that's also where Andrew and Peter were from. Quite possibly, they all attended the same synagogue as they were all living in that same town there. Uh, probably he was also acquainted with James and John, the sons of, of Zebedee. Uh, the events of John chapter 21, where, where they have gone out fishing again, it seems to indicate that Philip was quite possibly one of the two unnamed ones at that time. Uh, but it was probably a fisherman along with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And other than simply, there's lists, there's four, I believe it's four different lists of the apostles that show up in the New Testament. And other than, in Matthew and Luke, we just get his name listed there. Um, We get a glimpse a little bit more into the life of Philip uh, through the Gospel of John, who mentions more than just his name. Uh, He seems to be very different than the first four apostles we already looked at. When they're listed in those lists, they, they kind of see them as groups of apostles. The first four, one group, Philip here, kind of maybe the leader of a second group. This is their estimation, uh, inclination by how history has gone and, and the things that, they have, that they've seen there. Um, but Philip comes across really as kind of a process type of guy, a facts and figures that go by the book, practical-minded, not very forward-thinking a fellow, the picture we have of him, he tends to be pessimistic, narrow-minded, uh, very narrowly focused. Sometimes he misses the big picture altogether, uh, seeing reasons why something can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. Some of us have a knack for that, of seeing why things can't be done rather than uh, why they would do them. Um, one of the things I appreciate about my son, he's not afraid to try things. I've never been really afraid to try to do things I've never done before, and Peter does the same thing. He, it doesn't bother him. He took his car apart in our garage last night or yesterday for something to work on something, and got a new experience. He broke a bolt off in the motor in the engine block, and got a new experience of how to remove that. Uh, uh, you know, so, but again, not afraid to try some of these things and do it. Um, Philip was not like that. He would see all the reasons why you couldn't do something. He's somewhat of a defeatist. Uh, maybe kind of you could think of him as the as one of because he's not the only Eeyores of the uh, apostles. You know, oh, I don't know, I don't know if we can do that. Um, but his recalling is recorded here. You have the verses here, up here and from John chapter one, verse forty-three. It says, "The next day." The verses aren't, you know, in your outline, you can maybe mark the verses themselves down there. You know, you can read them later. I think that would be a good thing. Uh, The next day, he decided to leave Galilee. That's Jesus. Decided to leave for Galilee. Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered him. Now, the call to follow here, the call to follow Jesus was not a call to a casual commitment. You need to understand that. This was not a call to a casual commitment when he calls him to follow me. God doesn't call anyone to a casual commitment. Even today, he does not call us to a casual commitment. That is something that we made up. That is something, you know, that we came up with. That it can just kind of be a casual thing that we kind of do when we have time or do as we go along. Just a casual thing. Uh, that they, they knew this wasn't a casual thing. God called Philip to a commitment that would affect his, his, his life, all of his living. That's what he called him to when he said to come and follow me. Because it was a literal call to come, leave what you're doing, begin walking alongside me. Literally walking alongside me as I go through my everyday activities and life and learn and you know be taught. This is the commitment he was called to. This is the commitment that we are called to. Now notice, Philip responded without hesitation. Philip was probably, you know, they feel probably one of John the Baptist's disciples also, so this was not his first exposure to Jesus. You know, he was exposed to him before, but the thing as I was looking at this, you know, when, when we realize, you know, when God calls us, when he calls you to something, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Philip didn't hesitate. Now, again, he had some prior learning here because it says he was studying God's word. He was studying the law and the prophets, God's word. So when Jesus called him to come and follow him, Philip was quick to do so. He had this background knowledge from the scripture and he was quick to respond to that. You know, he was quick to, he was quick to, to respond when Jesus called him. Why? Because Jesus met, you know, what they saw there in the law and the prophets. He studied God's word and he believed God's word and he was looking for the Messiah just as God's word had said. And here comes, you know, along there and he sees it and he responds. We need to realize it is not just enough to study. We need to also believe what God's word says. And if we believe on it, we will act on what it says. All of those parts are there. Study, believe, and act. All three are necessary. If it, if it doesn't result in action, what good is the study? What good is the study if it doesn't result in action? And if it doesn't bring about action, the question can be asked... Do you really believe? Do you really believe? If there's no action taking on it. Now, did you notice here, Philip also didn't stop when he found Jesus. He tells Nathaniel, told, he told Nathaniel about Jesus. Now, it seems Nathaniel and, and Philip had a relationship. And so he had this relationship and he tells then, he, he tells him about Jesus. We need to tell people. We need to tell people we already know. And we need to tell them about Jesus. Those whom we already know. When my sister Mary came to a relationship with Jesus, she was the first one in our family that did that. And when she came to a relationship with Jesus, she came home and told us. Now, that was a big step, you know, on, for many reasons. We didn't care. We didn't care. We weren't really interested. But she told us, and she kept telling us, You know, those in her family, she kept telling us. Now, it was years later, 
You know, it was years later, but, you know, first Ginny, and then about a year after Ginny, then I came into a relationship with Jesus. What if Mary had kept that to herself because she knew it wasn't something we were looking for? What if she didn't say anything? What if she didn't tell us about Jesus because she was afraid of what we might say? You know, what if you know, she didn't say anything because she didn't feel, feel like she knew too much, that she knew enough to share yet? Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Friendships and connections that we already have are the best people to tell about Jesus. They're the best ones to begin telling them. You know, they're the ones that we have the most opportunity to tell, but also the ones we possibly tell the least. Because we're intimidated, because we're afraid, and we have this whole list of reasons. What Philip said to Nathaniel makes it seem like even Philip was a little surprised at who the Messiah was. He says, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. It almost makes it seem like he's a bit surprised. Now, we're going to look a little bit more at Nathaniel next week, but his response was less than positive. Um, you know, but the less than enthusiastic response, notice it didn't stop Philip. Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. Don't give up too easily. You know, don't give up too easily when you tell people about Jesus. Just because it seems like perhaps they're not interested. You know, people have to hear about Jesus more than once before they actually come to a place of having a relationship with him. Those who have studied these things could tell you, you know, they'll talk about they need between five and twelve, you know, touches, they kind of refer to him as, where somebody kind of seriously interacts with them about Jesus and who he is and be able to get them to start thinking about it. Even people who are raised in the church, it's often years before they come to accept Christ as Savior. Years. And they've heard about him all their life, but it's a long time before they come to a relationship with Jesus. You know, someone may seem to be negative at first, Nathaniel certainly was, you know, but they're thinking, they're evaluating. Keep talking to them about Jesus because he is that important. You see, he is that important. He is important enough where you should keep talking to him. That's not my phone, is it? You should, you know, he's important enough where you should keep talking. You know, you should keep talking to people about him. They are important enough as well. He is important enough, and they are, they should be important enough to you that you can keep talking and telling them. Come and see, he says. Come and see. He invites him into that, you know, into this, you know, come and see for yourself. Come and see what it's like. Now, it seems, you know, that Philip responded right away, which appears to be a bit of out of character for him. But notice he studied the scriptures. He studied God's word. He studied God's law and the prophets. He had studied that. And he was ready when the invitation came. Nathaniel was not. Nathaniel was not quite ready. So Philip helped him to consider it further. Come and see, he says. Come and see. We need to, we need to realize, we need to really remember, it is not our responsibility to convince someone. It's not our responsibility to convince someone, but it is our responsibility to tell others about Jesus. It is our responsibility. He has given us that charge. He has given us that responsibility to tell others about Jesus. 
And God will then begin to work on their hearts. God will begin to touch them. God will bring others into their lives who will talk to them about Jesus. The next time we see Philip in, in John's Gospel is in chapter 6. It's at the feeding of the 5,000. Well, it's really more than 5,000. It's listed as often as the feeding of the 5,000, but it says there were 5,000 men. That doesn't count the women and children. I've read estimates, you know, that, that range from, you know, anywhere from seven to 20,000 people. The point is, it's a, it's a lot of people. And here's what, <coughs> here's what we read in Philip's time there. It says, now the Passover, a Jewish festival was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread for all of these people so that they can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even just a little bit. So here Jesus and his, and his apostles, you know, they're with many thousand people and it's getting near time to eat. Jesus turns toward Philip. He turns toward Philip and he asks where they're going to get the supplies to eat. You can hear the shock in Philip, you know, Philip's reply. 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to feed these people for even to have a little bit. You know, what are you thinking, Jesus? What are you, you know, a good thing I'm here to help you understand these facts, Jesus. We can't do this. Let me put this in perspective for you just a little bit. And a denarius was the normal wage for the common working man. Some of you have a footnote to that effect in your Bible. Uh, so 200 denarii would be the equivalent of 200 working days. Again, do some of that quick math, and that tells you that that's 33 weeks and a couple of days of working six days a week. You know, that if you're working six days, if you're only working five days a week, that's 40 weeks. That's about three quarters of the year. Now, keep in mind, it's 100% of that money. It's not what's left over after you pay your own living expenses. It's 100% of all of that money that, you know, for three quarters of a year. Jesus addressed his question to Philip. Perhaps Philip was responsible for the one arranging meals for the apostles. They did have roles. We're told in, uh, in another place that Judas, when we get to him, we'll look at that. Judas was the one responsible, you know, for the, the money bag. He took care of the money for the group. And it seems maybe Philip was the one responsible for arranging things, you know, like maybe the manager or however you want to look at it, you know, the general manager. Um, but notice here when he was asked, he was ready with an answer as soon as Jesus asked him about feeding the people. Because it seems that Philip had already been doing some counting and some figuring. Well, let's see. I see, you know, we've kind of shared our meals before. I have this. I know what we have on hand. There's a lot of people here. He came up with the same answer I did. There's a lot. You know, there's, there's just a lot of people here. And if we were able to, if we were able to get anything, let's see, this would be, this would cost, you can buy, you can buy loaves, and if you buy barley loaves, they're cheaper, so we can get more barley loaves and stuff. But the number of barley loaves we can get for, this, this just isn't going to happen. Just this, this, this just can't happen. 
you know, it seems he'd already done some of this counting. It seems he's already done some of this figuring. That instead of, so what's happening here is instead of seeing the opportunity that Jesus had to reach so many people, instead of seeing what was open before them, Philip is seeing the problems and missing the opportunity. He's seeing the challenges and he's missing the opportunity. We're right there with him sometimes. But what we need to do, what we need to do is look for the opportunity in the challenges, not the challenges in every opportunity. Sometimes what we do is we look at all of the challenges and and we miss the whole opportunity and we come up with this can't be done. What we need to begin doing is looking for the opportunity and the challenges and seeing what might God do. You see, Philip could only see the impossibilities of the situation, yet he, he had the answer to the problem right there with him. Jesus was standing right there with him. And Jesus' ability to do the impossible. He had already seen Jesus do the impossible. And that answer was right there with him. Now, when Jesus asked the question, you know, of, of Philip, he really wasn't looking for information. He already knew what Philip was thinking. Earlier in John's gospel, he tells us, you know, that Jesus did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus was trying, he wasn't looking for information. He was trying to get Philip to see himself more clearly. Notice what it says in verse 6. He asked this to test him. Jesus wanted Philip to see. You, you take a test. You take a test to see what you're able to do. See, some of us look at tests as something to, you know, that to, to be defeated or something. To you're gonna in school or anywhere else, you're gonna learn more when you get a test and you realize those areas. You realize not only what you can do, but maybe some things that you need to fix a little bit. Some places where you need to study a little bit more. Some areas, you know, where maybe physically you need to do a little bit more. You know, and, and that, you know, so you, you test and the, the whole result, the whole part of it there, you know, is so that we might be able to do more. And here he says, you know, he, is, he asks Philip to test him, to help Philip to see Philip. And Jesus was not looking for a plan because he tells him, you know, at the end of that verse, he says, for he, Jesus himself, knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He wasn't looking for information. He wasn't looking for help. He wasn't looking for a plan. He had all that. What he was doing is trying to help Philip to grow. I don't want to break your heart, but God is not waiting for our ideas. He is not waiting for our ideas at all. What he is trying to get us to do is to trust his leading and to see his plan. He is trying to help us trust his leading. He is trying to help us see his plan. Now, he will work his plan even if we don't see it or even if we don't understand it. As he did with the feeding of the 5,000, they didn't get it. What did Jesus do? He kept on, he kept on, he kept on and fed those 5,000, even though the disciples didn't get it. He, he worked his plan. Philip, fell victim to what we often do. He fell v- victim to materialistic thinking. Just materialistic thinking there, and from a purely human perspective, he was right. 
from a materialistic viewpoint and just purely human reasoning, a purely human perspective, he was right. They didn't have enough to take care of this situation. It was absolutely correct. But what he did is he forgot about the one that he was following. He forgot about the one who asked him this question. He forgot about the one who asked him to be involved. He forgot about the reality of Jesus. Standing right there with him. We miss the opportunity when we focus on the impossibilities instead of looking to what Jesus wants us to do. We forget about the reality of Jesus. The next time we see Philip in John's gospel is in Chapter 12, the final Passover Jesus was going to share with his apostles that that was approaching. And as they're getting ready for this, what Jesus knew, but they didn't realize were some of the last days with him. We're told in John chapter 12, it says, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir... We want to see Jesus. Now Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now you have a group of Greeks here, and they're very interested in meeting Jesus. They came to Philip because he believed that he would be the one that could get them this face-to-face with Jesus that they wanted. Now why, we can only guess. They could have been drawn by his Greek name, Or maybe they were drawn, you know, once again, it seems Philip was the one known as the organizer, the arranger, the scheduler keeper, the guy who was who was managing things and and organizing things. But notice what Philip does here. He steps back. He doesn't step into this opportunity. He steps back, not totally away. What he does is he takes this group to Andrew. Instead of being the one, you know, to bring him to Jesus, he stops and he takes him, you know, he takes him to Andrew. Now, Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. We looked at that before, you know, and he does the same thing here. Together, we're told, together, Andrew and Philip bring these men, you know, to the attention of Jesus. They bring them before Jesus. Now, we're not told anything specific at all about Jesus meeting this group, but we are told what Jesus says to the crowd and, uh, you know, and, and to Philip as he's, these Greeks are coming. And I found that interesting. In John chapter 12, it goes on. It says, Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, <clears throat> it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Andrew and Philip come to Jesus with this group, and this is Jesus' reply, not only to the Greeks, but to Philip as well. And as I'm reading this, and he's talking about having to die to self. He's talking about, you know, having to put ourselves aside and, and, you know, that, that whole trust factor there. And when I, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know, we need to be careful. Don't be too afraid. Don't be too proud to ask others to help you. 
Now, they may or may not go with you. Here, you know, we're told Philip and Andrew went together, and they may or may not go with you. But when you're nervous and you're unsure, others can encourage you. Others can help motivate you. Don't be too proud to ask to help. Philip stepped, uh, stepped back, but he didn't step away. Too often we step back and walk away. Don't do that. Don't be afraid to ask others. For, we all have times where we need encouragement. We all have those times. We all have times where we need motivation. We all have times when we should ask for help. It's a hard lesson to learn. You're miserable when you don't. Don't let pride, don't let fear of keeping you, don't let fear keep you from getting help. Don't let fear or pride keep you from the reality of Jesus. Don't let that happen. You know, it's a step of growth. Now, the final time that John specifically mentions Philip is in chapter 14, the time right after that final Passover meal. They're on the very brink of Jesus' crucifixion here. Jesus just finished speaking words of reassurance, telling us, telling, you know, he said, you know, as you believe in God, believe also in me, he said. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Thomas didn't know the way. He said, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he just had this time with him. And Jesus replies in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he goes on. He says, if you know me, You will also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus makes a very explicit claim about his deity. He is laying it out there before him. He is stating that he is God. He is stating that to see him is to see the Father. That they are one. There are three persons in the Trinity, yet there is one essence. So individually and together, they are God. They are one God. Individually and together, that is part of it. And he says, when you see the Father, you have seen me. And he said, that, you know, that they had seen Jesus. They had come to know Jesus. So in effect, Jesus is telling them, they have already known the Father as well. And then Philip speaks up. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. Jesus' words are still hanging in the air. And Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus just got done telling them that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And his words are still echoing off the hills. And Philip speaks up and says, show us the Father. How could he say such a thing after what Jesus just said? How in the world, after all that Philip had seen Jesus do, how in the world could he ask this question? After all of the truth that he had heard Jesus teach, how in the world could he ever come up with this? And this is what Jesus goes on and tells Philip and answers him. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. 
believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. After all this time with Jesus, after all of this time, you know, here's Philip, and he has to be told who Jesus is. After such a strong start of seeing him as the Messiah, and he had this strong start where he said, I see him, he is the one. He is the one who, who fulfills the law and the prophets. I see that, and he had such a strong start. And here he is, you know, and he he's struggling with this here, and he's... Jesus has to tell him, I'm one with the Father. He's in me and I am in him. We are one. There's one essence. There's no division. Philip was a man of weak faith. Now, he is still going to be one of those, you know, that one of the 12. His name is still written on the foundation of, of, you know, of the kingdom of heaven. And he is still one of those, you know, but here he is. He's a man of weak faith. He is a man of poor understanding. He is a man who, over his time with Jesus, let the details of living with Jesus actually block his understanding of who Jesus really is. He started with that understanding. He said, Nathaniel, you got to see this guy. He's the one. I'm telling you, he is the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. But here he is at this point, and he's saying, who are you? He let... He, he, he let... You know, the, the, the details of living with Jesus block his understanding of who Jesus really is. A man who seems to let service for Jesus take precedence over the actual reality of Jesus. Don't let service for Jesus replace the reality of Jesus in your life. Don't let that happen. Don't even let living, your idea of living for Jesus, replace the reality of Jesus in your life. Don't get so caught up in the details that you miss the glory of God before you. Don't get so caught up in it that you miss the joy of God with you. We just finished celebrating Advent, the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. Don't lose that. Continual, continue to pursue and see the reality of Jesus. Now, Jesus did indeed change Philip's life, and he even changed it from this point. Tradition tells us that Philip was very instrumental in the spread of the gospel. He was very instrumental in helping people come to know Jesus. He was one of the first apostles put to death for his witness for Christ. By most accounts, we're told that about eight years after James was killed, that Philip was stoned to death in Heliopolis of Phrygia. Stoned to death. I can't imagine what that's like. Because when the first one hits you, you're not dead. Or probably the second. They're taking big rocks with the intent to kill you. To beat you to death one rock at a time. Philip overcame obviously the shortcomings that he seemed to struggle with here as we see in the gospels he grew in his walk with jesus christ he embraced the reality of jesus in his life the transformation i think that paul writes about in first corinthians when he says instead god has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise 
And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who became God-given wisdom for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that as it is written... The one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Let the reality of Jesus take hold and transform your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us and those who not only told us about you, but helped us to grow in you and to be able to continue to grow in you. Oh, Father, we need them. We need to be transformed by you. I know there are times where I have allowed letting service to you replace the reality of you in my life. I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to be the norm. For all of us, Father, continue to turn us over that we might stay fresh in our walk with you in realizing, seeing, and living in the reality of Christ Jesus, God with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.